This is an out loud recording of one of our latest YouTube videos. To find us, go to youtube.com slash redditreaders or click the link in the description below. Hey everyone and welcome back to r slash nuclear revenge, the subreddit where people get insane levels of revenge on those who have wronged them. Today's post, it's a long one. My story of revenge that went even further than planned. I will have to reveal and admit a few things about myself I'd rather not and am not proud of. If you hate or struggle with reading, then don't even continue. My story is unfortunately true and I would not wish my life upon anyone, not even those I choose to seek out revenge upon. When I was 18, my father suffered a debilitating stroke and could never work or drive again. I volunteered to look after him as my mother had a full-time job and my family needed her to keep working. Sadly, exactly one year to the day of his stroke, he passed away after enduring a triple bypass. I lost my shit, as we used to say back in the day, and it changed something inside of me. I had lived a somewhat sheltered life due to regularly attending church and church activities. When my father passed if I wanted to go to college, I would have to pay for it out of pocket. I did not qualify for any loans, thankfully in retrospect. I got a menial job and began partying at age 19, having never tasted alcohol, done drugs, had sex, etc. I had been bullied quite a bit growing up. I developed very late and always looked several years younger than my friends. At a party one night, I met a guy several years older than me, we'll call Benji. He asked me to come by after my shift at my shitty minimum wage job the next day and I agreed. When I arrived, he brought me into his house where two of his friends were busy sorting through a table of white powder. I'd seen drugs in movies, so I rightfully assumed it was cocaine. They offered a line and laughed at my refusal to try it. The reason Benji had singled me out was the fact that even at age 19, I looked like I should have been a freshman or sophomore in high school. The dealer and his guys had kids selling cocaine at all of the local high schools. The area I'm from had a lot of old wealth and trust fund kids. They wanted me to go to each high school campus each day and pick up cash while dropping off pre-weighed bags of coke. They would buy packs of cigarettes and put coke in each with a small initial on the bottom indicating which school. They'd gotten their hands on a cellophane wrapping machine that would seal and shrink the plastic. Everything worked well as planned for years. It was amazing to learn how many cops, lawyers, and even judges were on the take. I did things in those younger days that could have gotten me very long prison sentences or worse had I been caught. I quit my stupid job and worked daily for Benji. If I wasn't delivering or weighing cocaine, Benji and his buddies were teaching me how to shoot guns, work out, or fight. They'd build a full-size boxing ring out back because they truly loved to spar. They sensed I'd been picked on a lot growing up. Even though I'd grown another three inches in height after high school to stand six foot two, I was still wiry and not very strong. Benji was several years older than me and had been stationed in South Korea for many years. There he took it upon himself to learn a form of martial arts known as subak. But he'd also been a boxer as well. 
The three guys loved teaching me how to handle myself. They'd teach me to master one move, then delighted in springing a new, never-before-seen move on me. None of this was ever meant to attack anyone, strictly self-defense. They wanted to be sure I could protect myself should anything bad go down, and wanted me to be able to have their backs. Benji made me carry a loaded 9mm everywhere we drove. He carried a huge 357 Magnum revolver. Eventually, I was several years into college and had begun to sell to classmates. My mom was proud I was paying for my own tuition and books, never asking how. Yes, there are some people, albeit very few, that use money earned from unsavory deeds to better themselves, just as there are a few strippers who use that money to get a degree. It is rare, but it does happen. What my mom never knew was the fact I was making more in a week selling drugs than she did as a teacher in a month. I drove an old Camry. I never bought flashy clothes or threw money around to impress anyone. I kept as low a profile as I could. I finished my BA degree in three years due to having plenty of free time. I initially wanted to be a lawyer, but I had known far too many corrupt cops and judges. I did study law with no goal of ever passing the bar because I wanted to become and eventually became a jury consultant. For those that don't know what that is, when a law firm has a client that they're defending, a list of potential jurors is sent out. Television makes it look like lawyers decide for or against a potential juror on the spot in court. A good lawyer already has a very good idea of each potential juror's background before they enter the room. My job was to take each name and research any background I could find. The firm I worked for decided what was pertinent information for each particular case. The firm I work for has the highest regard in my area. I can research a lot of information about people legally through something as simple as an online background data site. In the much more recent past, I reacquainted with a high school classmate we'll call Shayna. I discovered she and I both had crushes on each other back in the day, but we'd both been too shy to say a word to each other. Without a lot of pointless details, suffice it to say Shayna and I became best friends, fell head over heels in love, and were planning a future together. Both of our previous relationships had been disasters. Mine in particular had left me feeling totally dead inside, believing I was incapable of love. It had been years since I had dated by choice. My previous ex, we'll call Allison, had done things cold and utterly heartless to cause our breakup. I was nothing but good to her, rescuing her from an abusive relationship, never abused her, and let her know no human deserves to be abused. When she stabbed me in the back and left me, my life was in total ruin. Finding Shayna didn't just give me hope, it made me realize that every relationship before her had been pointless. Shayna was the love of my lifetime, we were meant to be together, and finally were. Sadly. Five years ago, I awoke to discover Shayna was not beside me. I thought nothing of it until I went into the laundry room to find her face down on the floor. When I picked her up, even before I turned her over, I knew something was wrong. Her body was completely stiff. When I did turn her over, I realized she was dead. Rigor mortis had already set in, and her face was frozen in the most painful expression of agony you could imagine. I called 911 even knowing she was already dead and long past saving. I really don't want to go into detail about that night. 
Suffice it to say, the cops suspected I'd done something or she'd OD'd. For five hours, detectives went through everything we owned. I was questioned repeatedly the same questions by multiple cops. All the while, I was trying to console her mother with the realization her one and only daughter was dead. The next day, I accompanied Shana's mother to Shana's neurologist. Shana had epilepsy, and her doctor suspected she might have died from SUDEP, sudden unexpected death due to epilepsy, which neither of us had ever heard of. Months later, when the autopsy came back, that was the cause of death. The next few days were a blur of misery, tears, and disbelief. Devastated does not begin to express how I felt from that point for many, many months. I will not lie, there were many moments I thought of, and even planned, to take my own life. I knew Shayna would want me to live, and after seeing how the loss of a child had affected her mother, I could not do that to my own mom. I managed to face the future only by focusing on my mother, who was getting up in years at the time. I closed myself off to all friends and extended family. It was hard enough just having the fortitude to hold down my job and look after my mom. I worked out every day and did cycling for cardio. I took some Krav Maga classes to relieve stress. But I didn't even think of dating, and frankly the idea seemed pointless. Shayna was a truly, truly special person with a beautiful soul. I knew I could never have that kind of relationship with anyone ever again. Eventually, two years passed, and I met a female we will call Angie. We initially started hanging out as friends again, as that is what I needed most at the time. But as I opened up about what had happened with Allison, and then Shayna, we got closer, and Angie seemed to sympathize. We started sleeping together and eventually became a couple. I was still having to keep some focus on my mother, though I enjoyed my time with Angie. She seemed to appreciate that I actually listened, spoke honestly, and was protective of her. She said she loved me, and I admitted I loved her. I never told her a word about how I'd paid for college or the things I'd seen or done. Shayna knew and loved me in spite of it all. While I knew it would never be what Shayna and I had, I never told or even hinted at that to Angie. Things went along well for the most part. My mother's need for assistance was fairly limited. Angie knew what I'd endured losing Shayna, and she seemed to understand the responsibility I had looking after my mom. Angie and I had been in a committed, monogamous relationship for well over a year when my mother had to have some medical tests done. My mom had a leaking heart valve, and the tests were to determine if they could repair the valve. A week later, we received good news. The valve could indeed be replaced. However, we also received devastating news. While running the tests, they discovered four small masses in and around her right kidney. The odds were high that the masses were tumors and malignant. The doctors did a biopsy to discover she did in fact have renal kidney cancer. She began chemotherapy, and I knew my focus needed to be on my mom. Things had been going great with Angie. We were planning to move in together. She lived in a town about 30 miles from mine. When I told Angie about my mom, she seemed deeply concerned and supportive. When I explained it meant we would see less of each other, she assured me that she had no desire to put things between us on hold. She said she wanted to be there for me, if in no other way than as emotional support. I told Angie, in fact I urged Angie, 
that if she decided she wanted to take a break or thought she might be interested in anyone else she met, just to tell me, and I would understand. She assured me that she cherished me in her life and that nobody could ever take my place in her life. Initially, the chemotherapy seemed to be having none of the horrible side effects. It was well into her second month before she started noticing weakness and a loss of appetite. I talked to and texted Angie multiple times per day, every day. She would message me asking how my mom was doing as soon as she woke up each morning. And we often spent hours before falling asleep talking and telling each other how much they were missed. We got to see and spend the night together about every two weeks, but everything seemed fine when we did. My mom's condition began to worsen. So I told Angie that she should go out with friends and have some enjoyment in life. As summer began, I knew Angie would enjoy going to outdoor activities even without me. My mom's failing health that summer meant no fun in the sun for me. Angie would go out with friends and I enjoyed hearing about silly things she and her friends did. I was genuinely glad she wasn't being a shut-in over issues in my life. She always expressed concern and sadness each time I told her what was going on with my mom. The chemo was, in fact, killing the cancer cells. However, she was growing more and more frail. I realized cancer was no longer killing my mother. The medicine was. I needed to take a break, so a group of ladies from my mom's church came to sit with her to give me a little free time on my own. I called Angie as I was nearing her town. She gave me the address of where she and her friends were to meet them. When I arrived, I saw most of her friends, which I'd already met. As I made my way through the house to the back deck, I saw a guy sitting very close to Angie. They were both laughing and cutting up with other friends. She introduced me as her boyfriend to the guy we will call Will. He shook my hand, insisting he was glad to meet me. I was cordial to him. I don't think Angie suspected I immediately felt something was amiss with Will. I suppose many people get a gut feeling when they encounter someone shifty. Due to my own criminal activity many years before, my takes one to no one instincts told me there was something shady about Will. I knew he was new to their group of friends. None of them, including Angie, had known him longer than a couple of months. I must be clear that I know now what I felt at the time was not jealousy. Angie had many male friends, all of whom I genuinely liked, but there was something I sensed about Will that made me a bit skeptical about his character. I tried my best to ignore it, writing the feeling off as mere jealousy. I began to talk with Angie and her friends, trying to put my mind at ease. I monitored Will from afar and interacted with him cordially. Angie and I stayed at her place that night before I had to leave to head home. Over the next several weeks, my mother's condition began to worsen. But Angie and I spoke and texted throughout the day, every day. In hindsight, I now realize I was initiating most of our communication, but at the time, I wasn't keeping count. One day, a few relatives volunteered to look after my mom to give me a break. I headed to see Angie, calling her on the way. She told me what restaurant she and her friends were having dinner, so I made my way there. I was pulling into a parking space and saw Will get into a late model black Mustang. He pulled out, though he did not see me, unfamiliar with my car. I made my way inside where Angie and her friends greeted me with hugs and words of sympathy and encouragement. We all had dinner and a few drinks before Angie and I went back to her place. 
Before bed, I casually asked why Will had left before I got to say hello. Angie stated she had no idea Will had even been at the restaurant. The place we'd eaten was in a strip mall next to several other businesses. I thought perhaps he had come out of one of those stores and neither Angie nor her friends had seen him. At any rate, I again stayed with her that night before heading back to my place about noon. The next day, my mom became very ill and had to be taken to the hospital via ambulance. She had pneumonia and was extremely weak due to the chemo and susceptible to many ailments. For three weeks, she was hospitalized. They gave her many medications via an IV, but her condition worsened each day. The doctors finally informed me she had at most a week to live. I knew she would not want to leave this earth in that hospital room. So, the staff made arrangements for hospice to bring her home and help me make her last few days as peaceful as possible. When everything had been set up, we brought my mom home. Though extremely weak, she was glad to see her house and familiar settings once again. We both knew she didn't have much longer to live. While she was a bit afraid, she also told me she was ready to go and see my father once again after so long. I got one of my cousins to look after my mom for a few hours, got in my car and drove to see Angie without calling. I hadn't called because I was crying so hard facing my mom's impending demise. I wouldn't have been able to talk. When I arrived at Angie's house, I saw a black Mustang parked in her driveway behind her car. I actually didn't think anything of it as I was so focused on soon losing my mother. I used the key she had given me to enter into the kitchen as we always did. As soon as the door opened, I heard loud music playing but still didn't really suspect anything. I saw no one in the living room or on the back deck. I walked down the hallway toward her bedroom and heard noises coming from inside. As I reached for the door handle, I stopped. I realized the sounds I heard were sexual in nature. My heart sank even further as I pulled back my hand, not wanting to draw attention. Her bathroom was connected to a guest room with an adjoining bathroom. I quietly walked around and into the unlit bathroom to find her bedroom door open. I stopped in my tracks as I saw them both completely naked going at it, oblivious to my presence. Honestly, my first instinct was to run full speed and introduce his face to the back of his skull with my knee. But I knew I had to stay out of trouble for the sake of my mother and my job. So I slowly backed away, shaking with anger. I went back through the guest room, out of the house, and to my car. I hadn't been seen. I just sat there in the car, bawling my eyes out. After about half an hour, I cranked my car and headed back to my mom's. I told no one what I'd just seen. Everyone assumed my tears were totally in regard to my mom. They of course partially were. But the betrayal I'd just seen witnessed was like something so sadistic I struggled to grasp it. My logic knew my mom was my top priority, especially so close to the end. Yet I felt so deceived by Angie, I felt a rage like I'd never known before. And I'd felt plenty of rage. I thought of calling Angie, letting her know what I had seen, and cursing her out. But I knew if she didn't care enough to be faithful to me while my mother was on her deathbed, a stream of profanity wouldn't bother her. I made sure my mother was comfortable and went to try and sleep in my old childhood room. I cried. I slept. I woke up crying and cried some more throughout the night. 
I awoke to my cell phone ringing and saw it was Angie calling. I ignored the call and the urge to slam the phone against the wall. I went in to check on my mom, who was in a deep sleep due to the morphine sulfate they had her on. I managed to text Angie I was very busy with my mom and would call her later. After forcing myself to eat food I didn't want and taking a shower, the hospice nurses came by to check on my mom. After checking her vital signs, they regretfully informed me that my mother would die within 48 hours. I thanked them and walked out into the backyard, trying to not totally lose my mind with all that had happened and was about to happen. I managed to text Angie and told her my mother's condition was about the same. I didn't want to see her, I didn't want to talk to her, and I didn't want her showing up. I owed it to my mom to do everything I could to make sure her last moments were as peaceful as I could. The next afternoon, just before 4pm, my mother took her last breath with me by her side, holding her hand as her life expired. The next three days, I was in a total daze, meeting with her pastor and making final touches on the church and burial service. But I could not for the life of me get the images of Angie and Will fornicating right in front of me out of my mind. The more I thought about it, the angrier I got. I was mad at Angie, furious, but remembering how Will had been so overly friendly toward me made my blood boil even more. If they hadn't already been intimate when I first met him, they were soon about to. That made me want to know just exactly who the son of a bitch really was. I opened the site I used for background checks. I hadn't checked him out before because I wanted to trust Angie and her decision making. I'd sensed from the moment I met him he was bad news. I was actually angry at myself for ignoring my gut instincts. I knew nothing but his first and last name. It was a distinct last name I had difficulty spelling correctly. When I finally got it right, a link popped up which I opened to see an old mugshot of Will's from many years before. I was once arrested and have done some despicable things in my life. I've known people who have done horrible things intentionally and under the influence of various substances. But Will had a long rap sheet for a variety of crimes. Several DWIs, receiving stolen goods, breaking and entering, and drug arrests were listed. As I scrolled down through his record, the arrests got more heinous. I discovered Will had been out of prison on early probation approximately two years after serving nine years. When I saw the charges included sexual exploitation of a minor, statutory rape, and a host of other sexual offenses, I admit I was disgusted. Angie had betrayed me, which hurt enough. The knowledge she may have exposed me to God only knows what diseases that felon had gotten as a sex fiend and then eventually in prison made me feel physically ill. I doubted Angie had any idea who she was involved with behind my back. She had a naive, trusting nature that had given her issues before, but never like that. I had no doubt anyone who knew of Will's record would have considered him a vile creature. He should never have been let out of prison. But I had my mom's funeral to focus on and had to pull myself together. By the time her funeral was over and everyone had left, I was exhausted and mentally spent. As I put my head on the pillow to try and sleep, Angie called, not knowing my mom had passed or that I knew what she'd been up to. She'd been texting and calling much less in the days before my discovery and after. I answered the phone and tried my best to sound as glad to hear from her as I could. 
I didn't let on anything had changed with my mom's status, nor that I knew about her and Will, or what I knew about Will. I let her do most of the talking and internalized every word I knew to be a lie as if I totally believed her and appreciated her false sympathy. When she claimed she missed me as we said goodbye, I lied and told her the same. But in all honesty, at that moment, if she'd dropped dead, I would not have cared in the least. I had a few weeks off from work for bereavement. I knew things with Angie were over and done with, but part of me couldn't help but struggle with how cruelly she had treated me, intentionally or not. I was glad to know the truth about her and about Will before any further lies and betrayal could occur. But I felt what both of them had done to me at a time when I was struggling to keep it together was just flat out wrong. I wanted revenge. I wanted to destroy both of their lives and yet never let either know I had any part of it. I called my human resources department and filled out the necessary FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, paperwork to stay out longer than my given two weeks. I truly had no reason to worry about getting fired, but I took the legal route and had enough of a nest egg to pay my bills for half a year or more if I needed to. Revenge on Will was quite easy. As he was on parole and a felon, even a minor charge would get him sent back to prison to finish his original sentence. But I didn't want him to just have to finish out his original sentence. I wanted new charges that would bring him so much time behind bars he never saw freedom again. I'd met his parole officer on many occasions, and she knew me well enough that if I had called, she would have investigated Will. Felons have difficult times gaining employment. If he had a job, I had my doubts he was gainfully employed to be able to afford a new Mustang and insurance. I parked down the street from Angie's in a car she would not be fami familiar with. I saw Will's car in her driveway. I had two iPhones on my account, one for work and the other for personal use. I walked down to his car and stealthily duct taped my work phone securely to the underside of his back bumper. Back in my car, I used the Find My iPhone app to locate my work phone where I knew it to be. Around 2am when I heard him rev his engine before pulling off from her driveway, I casually followed him, not wanting him to suspect he was being followed. I was about a quarter mile away from the phone signal when I noticed my phone had stopped moving. I followed the signal to a cruddy looking house in a below average part of Angie's town. His car was parked and he'd already gone inside. I wrote down the license plate number and parked down the street. I slept several hours in view of his house after seeing no activity. When the sun rose, I went and bought some breakfast to eat and returned. Over the course of the day, it was easy to tell either Will had a lot of friends who saw no reason to stay and talk very long, or he was dealing. He was most likely dealing a highly addictive substance like cocaine, heroin, or meth. After a few hours, many customers returned for more of the narcotics. It was obvious he was selling. I took photos of each car that stopped by along with some video. I went back each day about the same time to document the continuing activity. I also observed each night about 6pm when I knew Angie was getting off work, he would leave. I trailed him each night to see him meet Angie at a restaurant or went straight to her house. I had major doubts she'd ever been to his house, at least not that house. I had enough evidence to turn into over to the local police but I decided to document his activities one more day as I knew he hadn't been out to get more drugs to sell. That last day, as I staked out his house around 3 p.m., people stopped coming by, which was unusual. 
I sat and observed when about 30 minutes later a large, black Cadillac Escalade pulled into his driveway. I had usually seen no more than one person get out of a vehicle to go into Will's house. This time I observed three large males exit the vehicle and open the back door to escort a middle-aged man inside. They stayed in Will's house for over two hours, which absolutely nobody had been doing. I was fairly certain the middle-aged man was his source for the drugs he was selling. I drove by, taking a picture of the Escalade license tag. At home, I downloaded the photos and video I'd taken of Will's activity to my computer. I made a detailed report, citing activity from the four days I'd observed what was going on. When finished, I printed out 30 pages of photos, with people heading for Will's door to buy drugs. I saved all video of activity I'd recorded to a flash drive, and placed it into a small plastic box for safekeeping. I knew it wouldn't take much to convince the police of what Will was up to. I was giving the cops actual admissible evidence with times and dates stamped on each photo and video, but I wanted to put so much heat on him that the police would be the least of his worries. The next morning, I went by the town's police station in Angie's town. I calmly walked in requesting to speak with someone in their narcotics division. A uniformed officer came out from the office section. I shook his hand and handed him one of my business cards. He stared at the cards for several seconds as two of the lawyers in the firm I worked for regularly worked in Angie's town. The cop knew the business card carried quite a bit of clout, even if I never passed the bar exam. I told him I had some information he might want to take a look at. The detective happily led me back to a conference room where we made small talk about mutual acquaintances. But soon I pushed a folder of paperwork and the box with the flash drive across the table toward him. Listed on the first pages was Will's full name, date of birth, his criminal record, and parole officer. The detective examined the photos and I sat quietly as he did. By the expressions on his face, he obviously realized he'd been given information that could easily lead to an arrest warrant for Will. He must have also imagined how much narcotics those arrests could get off the street, potential promotions, and other positives. He thanked me for the evidence and placed the folder back down on the table. He asked me if I would be willing to testify. I explained that the damning evidence was so I wouldn't have to. He smiled and casually asked if there was anything I needed. I explained that I felt Will had been allowed out of prison far too soon. It was obvious he had not been rehabilitated and deserved to go back to jail for much longer. The detective agreed, but again asked what I wanted in exchange for the information. I pulled out a photo of the black Escalade with license plate number and pushed it toward him. I asked him to write the tag number down for his own benefit. I explained the owner of the Escalade might be an even bigger drug dealer. I reaffirmed I wanted my name kept out of any police or court reports. He agreed. I then lied and said my firm was representing someone who may have been set up by the owner of the Escalade. He knew I could have gotten one of the lawyers in my firm to call in a favor for the info. But he also knew lawyers liked to use their favors sparingly. He thought quietly for a few seconds, realizing I'd given him yet another lead to potentially follow. I'd done more detective work in five days than his entire staff had done in months, so he happily agreed. Ten minutes later, he returned with a printout of the tag with the name and address of who it was registered to. I folded the printout and put it into my pocket. The detective and I made some more small talk about sports and cars before I shook the detective's hand and headed out to my car. 
I drove home knowing a judge would soon be filling out an arrest warrant for Will. I kept to myself for a few days, monitoring the arrest reports from Angie's local paper online. One morning, the front sight showed a photo of a very bewildered Will being led away in handcuffs. As long as nobody had made any stupid errors to let him off on a technicality, he'd be finishing out his original time plus many additional years. There was always the possibility he might get a good lawyer to get the charges reduced or find some loophole to get him off scot-free. I couldn't and wouldn't let that happen. I drove to the location the cop had given me. Sure enough, there was the large luxury vehicle sitting in the driveway of a modest house. Down the street, I waited about an hour until I saw what I believed to be one of his bodyguards leave in a different car. I followed and watched the guy go inside a mini-mart. I parked around the other side so my vehicle was hidden. I got out of my car, lit up a smoke, and waited for the guy to come out. My sunglasses obscured my face quite a bit. When he exited the store, I called him over, telling him I needed to tell him something. I'm sure he thought I was going to ask for gas money or tell him he needed to find Jesus. When I told him I had some information his boss, whom I will call Marcus, might want to know, he was shocked. He asked who I was. I told the guy none of that was important, but I was certain with the information I could give him, Marcus would greatly appreciate. He began looking around nervously, thinking it might be a bust, but I told him to relax. I told him to tell Marcus that Will had gotten busted, which he knew to be true, and had every intention of cutting a plea bargain. I suggested that Marcus get one of his boys in county jail to have a talk with Will. But I also explained they all needed to lay low until the heat had died down. Of course, I had no idea if any plea bargain was on the table. But a stranger volunteering such information out of the blue sure as hell wasn't going to look good to his boss. I knew how things worked well enough to know if Will made it to prison, the average dealer had enough connections inside to leave Will eating out of a feeding tube the rest of his days. Or worse. As I walked away, the guy asked my name and obviously wanted to get his gun from his car. I simply explained that Will had some payback coming from a previous betrayal and that Marcus had picked the wrong guy to sell his product. That wasn't a lie. He'd betrayed me. Neither Will nor Angie had any inkling of my past or how vengeful I could be. But it was enough to get the bodyguard to take my advice seriously. He quickly walked to his car as I hurried around the building. I slipped into a grocery store and watched Marx's bodyguard drive around the parking lot several times looking diligently. When I saw him pull out of the lot and speed down the road, I calmly exited the store, got into my car, and drove toward home. I hadn't been driving 10 minutes when my phone rang. The caller ID let me know it was Angie calling. When I answered, I tried to act surprised and happy to see her. Without even a friendly greeting, she asked how I couldn't have let her know my mother had passed away. She'd seen the obituary in my city's newspaper. I simply replied that it had seemed she was busy enjoying life and that I didn't want to burden her with my grief. I quickly asked why she hadn't been texting or calling as much lately. That led her to change the subject and ask to see me. I tried my damnedest to act happy to hear from her and told her that I missed her. I asked her if she could meet me for dinner at our favorite restaurant in her town. She readily agreed. Since Will was no longer around to keep time with, she was glad to have me back to fill in the void. I showed up to dinner with a smile and a long hug, trying to control the urge to break her spine in half. I was surprised she didn't say anything when I avoided kissing her. I'm sure she assumed in my grief that romance wasn't something I'd had on my mind much. 
I just had a very good idea what her mouth had been doing, and I didn't want Will's salad-tossing, knob-slobbering prison germs on me. We sat at the bar and ordered two drinks from our favorite bartender. He knew us as a couple because we always tipped very well. When our drinks arrived, I excused myself to the restroom and typed a short message out on my phone that read, Make my drinks with no alcohol, and make hers doubles. When I returned from the restroom, I sat next to Angie at the bar discussing drinks we'd enjoyed but hadn't tried in quite a while. I acted as if I was pulling up the recipe for some unusual drink. The bartender came over and asked if we were ready for another drink. I told him we were celebrating after not seeing each other for quite a while. I held up my phone for him to read the message, asking if he knew how to make that drink. He read the message and smiled, agreeing the drink I'd requested was a specialty of his. I'm sure the bartender and Angie assumed she could get as sloshed as she wanted to and that she'd be heading to her place with me afterward. I had other plans. Angie commented how strong hers was. I told her I could barely taste the alcohol in mine. We ordered several more drinks. Angie commented about how drunk she felt. I acted confused, stating I barely felt a buzz at all. After several hours, I paid for our dinner and drinks with a sizable tip. As we exited the door, I acted like I'd gotten a very important phone call, which I needed to take. After the obligatory bullshit, non-existent phone call, I told her I had to rush back to my town to the office. One of the lawyers needed info for a case early the next morning. I asked her to go to her house and wait on me, promising the errand wouldn't take long. I helped her into her car and watched her pull off before using my cell phone to immediately call the police and tell them I'd seen a drunk driver leaving that restaurant. I urged them to hurry. The person was in no shape to be driving. I jumped into my car and headed toward Angie's house about two miles away. About a mile from her house, I saw blue lights ahead of me and slowed down to see Angie's car pulled over. I knew she was going to get a DWI as that is, in fact, what I had planned. What neither she nor I knew was that Will had been using her car to deliver cocaine to low-level dealers under him. They did the obligatory search of Angie's car and found several ounces of cocaine stashed beneath the back seat. I had absolutely no intention of getting her arrested for narcotics possession with intent to sell. But the fact Angie had given me her spare car key the same night she'd given me her spare house key, I knew Will could have just as easily been the one to fuck my life up. Neither still had any idea I knew about their unscrupulous cheating. That was revealed to all later. As I arrived back at my house and my cell phone rang from a strange number, I answered to hear Angie crying and blubbering while trying to tell me something. I got her to calm down. I actually wanted to hear what she had to say. She managed to tell me she was in jail, to which I innocently asked where and for what. When she told me what she had been arrested for, I was genuinely shocked about the drug arrest. I asked her what she wanted me to do. She wanted me to help get her out and asked me to post bond. I explained since my mom had died, I couldn't risk putting up any of my property due to probate issues. I could have easily put my own home up as collateral, but I viewed her drug charges as collateral damage, and she'd damaged my life enough. The charges for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute carried mandatory time. I felt after what she'd done to me, with who she betrayed me with, part of her deserved what was coming to her. I went to her arraignment and sat in the back, hoping not to be noticed. As she entered the courtroom, she saw me. 
I gave her a look of confusion as to how she could ever be arrested for such a crime. I knew damn well how, of course, but I had to act totally oblivious. When she tried to explain to the judge her boyfriend had been arrested for dealing drugs only days before and it had to be his, the judge didn't want to hear it. She turned around and looked at me in shame, with tears in her eyes, realizing I knew she'd been cheating. I shook my head in disgust as they led her away. She knew any attempt to contact with me ever again would be a fool's errand. Bond was set extremely high for both. At Will's trial, he pled guilty and asked to forego a trial in an attempt for leniency. He got none. Angie's trial took place a few weeks later and they accepted a plea. She got six years with the possibility of parole in three. But her career was over when she got out and I didn't care one bit. They'd effed with the worst person they could have ever crossed at the absolute worst time to cross me. She started her sentence two months ago. Her parents apologized to me. In all honesty, if she'd cheated on me at any other time in my life with almost anyone else, I doubt I would have sought out any revenge. But as they say, timing is everything, and their timing could not have been worse. In some ways, I'm not proud of what I did. Will deserved to be behind bars for the rest of his days, if for nothing else but his past sex crimes. Angie deserved to have any chance at a future destroyed, though all I had intended for her was for her to lose her license and job. I accomplished both for her, and I hope like hell her years of incarceration are miserable, and she regrets she was ever born. None of us truly ever really know who we are dealing with at any given time, and who not to cross. But when love turns to hate, any and every human is capable of things they would never have dreamed. All she had to do was tell me she needed a break, or say she'd met someone else. Instead, she chose to feed me lies and lies of omission. Be careful who you betray. They just might be willing to go the extra mile to ruin your present and future so badly you have no future at all. Feel free to think of me as cruel, a monster, or think I deserve just as bad a punishment as they received. That's your prerogative, and maybe I did. But I didn't get caught by the authorities or someone who'd endured way too much in life to just let things slide. So that's it for the post, guys, and wow, this story of revenge definitely meets the criteria of nuclear. I can't say what I would do, and I think few people probably can say what they would do if someone decided to cheat on you while you're taking care of your dying mother. I mean, I think it takes a especially evil kind of person to even let that cross their mind, let that possibility creep in. This story, uh, if nothing else, was super entertaining, and I hope you guys uh, were entertained by it the same way that I was. If you were, if you have any reactions to this, if you've known anybody who's been through a similar situation, if, heaven forbid, you've been through a similar situation yourself, tell your stories, tell your reactions, let us know them in the comments below, or leave a like. Those things always help us out a lot, and if you'd like to see more and hear more posts from r slash nuclear revenge and other subreddits in the future, please subscribe. Thank you so much for watching and for listening. Hey everyone, we hope you're enjoying our readings of popular Reddit posts. We love providing this service so that you can listen to these podcasts to pass the time, to fall asleep to, 
or to be entertained while still staying safe on your commute to work. We'd love to have the freedom to cover even more posts, but the recording and editing is time-consuming work and doesn't pay the bills. If you feel you're getting regular value out of these episodes, please consider supporting us with a small monthly donation. You can donate easily by visiting anchor.fm slash reddit readers and clicking on support this podcast. Every little bit helps, even if it's just enough to cover our morning cup of coffee. As always, thank you so much for listening.